For folks who have been defending and teaching about cannabis for years, it's often difficult to let any argument stand that suggests that cannabis is anything short of a perfect wonder herb. And while cannabis is a wonder herb, it's also true that because of prohibition, there's still a lot we don't know about the cannabis plant and how it acts on the human body. Unfortunately, politicians, law enforcement, pharmaceutical companies, and concerned parent types have used this absence of research to promote cannabis fears that are not based on evidence. One of these ideas is that cannabis use causes psychotic breaks, and there's just not evidence for that. But here's the rub. Cannabis and schizophrenia don't appear to be totally unrelated either. Based on the science we have, it is a complex understanding and not the kind of thing easily discussed casually in a Facebook group. If we are to really understand the relationship between psychosis and cannabis use, we need a gently considered long-form answer. Welcome to that discussion. Have you used CBG-dominant cannabis flour, tincture, and other preparations in the last six months? Dr. Ethan Russo asked me to let you know that he and others are conducting a study to determine the benefits and drawbacks to cannabigerol, and they would love your opinion. The questionnaire takes about 10 minutes and can be anonymous if you wish. The study is available at bit.ly forward slash CBG study. That's B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash capital C-B-G small case study. And the link is in the notes for this episode on shapingfire.com too. Thanks for considering participating. If you want to learn about cannabis health, business, and technique efficiently and with good cheer, I encourage you to subscribe to our newsletter. We'll send you new podcast episodes as they come out delivered right to your inbox, along with commentary on a couple of the most important news items from the week and videos too. Don't rely on social media to let you know when a new episode is published. Sign up for the updates to make sure you don't miss an episode. Also, we're giving away very cool prizes to folks who are signed up to receive the newsletter. This month, we're giving away Farmer Fly Selections seed packs of Chetawizzi and Vashon Lime Tonic to four different listeners who are subscribed to the updates. We did this contest last month on Instagram, and Farmer Fly had such a good experience that he suggested we run it again just for the Shaping Fire newsletter subscribers. There's nothing else you need to do to win except receive the newsletter. So go to shapingfire.com to sign up for the newsletter this week and be entered into this month's and all future newsletter prize drawings. Also, check out Farmer Fly Selections on Instagram, too. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and I'm your host, Shango Los. My guest today is neuroscientist Greg Gerdeman. Greg Gerdeman has joined me, joined me on Shaping Fire before, way back on episode 14, to discuss synthetic cannabinoids, and then again on episode 46 to discuss exercise, athleticism, and cannabis. Greg's work has been highlighted throughout cannabis media and in crossover publications like Science, National Geographic, and the New York Times. His scholarly research has spanned topics ranging from the synaptic physiology of the endocannabinoid system, behavioral pharmacology of CB1 receptors and their regulation of habitual memories, the physiological activation of the endocannabinoid system signaling in exercise, and the evolutionary and comparative biology of cannabinoid receptors through studies on invertebrate marine chordates. Totally great scientific work. Greg has also consulted for a handful of nationally recognizable cannabis brands, helping them develop medicinal cannabis products. Today, we will be detangling schizophrenia and cannabis use and teasing them apart to get a clearer understanding of both. Welcome back to Shaping Fire, Greg. 
Really glad to be here. Great to hear you. So, you know, Greg, we read in major media the assertion that cannabis causes schizophrenia and psychosis. But, you know, for most of us, those are like buzzwords without very much basis in reality. Mm-hmm. Would, would you start us off by describing schizophrenia first and then psychosis so that we can have a better grasp on what we're even learning about today? Yeah, sure. I'll, I will give that a shot. It's complicated, you know. For one thing, um, these are descriptions of mental experience and mental illness that, first of all, we certainly understand now uh, exist on a, on a continuum, right? It's like many other situations of psychiatric or neurological disease. It's not like something real simple, like hey, your blood sugar is off, you've got diabetes. Um, schizophrenia is a complex disorder of really characterized by disordered thought and symptoms of disordered thought. And if that sounds like a broad net, again, it's covering a broad array of symptoms. And let me be clear that I'm not a neurologist, I'm not a medical doctor, um, and things like clinical diagnoses change over time. So I wouldn't be the most cutting-edge person to necessarily you know, I certainly wouldn't diagnose someone. But that disclaimer aside, um, it, schizophrenia is characterized by imbalances and a lack of control over ordered thinking. And, um, it, of course, there are different levels of severity. And there are also two major clusters that have classically, classically been described of schizophrenic or psychotic-like symptoms. So psychosis is kind of schizophrenia falls into a kind of of psychosis, um, which again is is sort of an imbalanced, you know, disturbed thinking. Um, schizophrenia symptoms classically get divided into what are called positive symptoms and negative symptoms, and the negative tends to, in many cases, come on first. And when, when people say negative symptoms of schizophrenia, it doesn't mean that they're bad and positive ones are good. It refers to mental experience sort of being absent when it should be there or present when it shouldn't. And what I mean by that is, um, well, maybe I could start with, with the positive symptoms first because that includes things like hallucinations and uh, paranoid ideations, you know, paranoid conspiracies that go on in the mind or, or, or thinking that goes on. These are imagining, if you will, or, or sensing reality that isn't objectively there to the rest of us. You know, a total auditory hallucination of someone speaking to you when nobody else has any evidence that there's someone there. That kind of hallucination is a positive symptom because something is layering on to your conscious experience that is not objectively there. Um, Then you have the negative symptoms that are more like uh, apathy, uh, which is related to not having motivation, Um, anhedonia, or lack of, you know, feeling pleasure, Um, and blunt affect, where you're just flat, a flat sort of facial expression, lack, a a loss of emotional expression. and how does that get us to work, as an introduction to what schizophrenia and psychosis are? 
Well, it's really interesting. I had never considered the positive and the negative aspects, but but as you describe it, yeah, I get that. With with the positive ones, the the disordered thoughts are creating things that are not objectifiably there in the in the outside world. And then the negative ones are like some sort of lack of action, a lack of participation, a lack of expression. And and so when you in earlier when you use the term disordered thoughts, would would these positive and negative schizophrenic symptoms be considered disordered thoughts? Yes, they are. They are generally considered disordered thoughts. And um, you know the extreme psychosis. You asked me where that fits in. You know, psychosis is. A more general term, it's not necessarily part of schizophrenia, but it is a severe mental condition or disorder where thought and emotions are so, call them disordered or impaired, that that the person is sort of lost from external reality. You You are in your own world, and that's where a state of psychosis is referred to. Um, but some of that that can be obvious you know obviously that's a disordering of sorts um, or at least it makes sense to call it that but what about something more mundane like blunt affect um you know the way i liken it and this isn't meant to be a textbook definition but more my you know what's coming out of my way of thinking and and i should say you know when i started grad school 25 years ago started going into neurosciences, an interest in schizophrenia and finding, you know, therapeutic outcomes to help schizophrenia, discovering something. This was a big motivation to me. I've always had interest in this subject. Um, And so, part of my speculation, my conjecture, um, when someone, I mean, even just being a teenager is sometimes associated with, you know, being blunt affect, right? Yeah, yeah. Whatever, I'm gloomy um it, but i think in the in the situation we're talking about this can come about because of a a disconnect between like yourself and future self like making the association between what i want to do and where my hopes of where i want to be are or, or what my plan is um or maybe just not feeling the a, a, a joy um, you, you know you could probably nitpick about whether this is a disorganized thought or just something that's not really well wired or connected in a, a productive way but they are certainly all s- symptoms that come together in diagnoses of schizophrenia which progress into more and more severe conditions where the individual does become psychotic where this combination of you know so-called negative symptoms and not feeling or expressing normal um, emotions and and sensations combine with experiencing things that really aren't there to just create massive confusion that becomes an agitation from that confusion that becomes sort of the hallmark of, you know, madness. I mean, the names for these things have changed many times over the years, right? But um, schizophrenic illness is a, 
you get various levels of severity. But the popular thinking is one of madness, insanity, sometimes violent, you know, insanity, but not always. Sometimes just utterly withdrawn. Oftentimes complex, you know, the brilliant mind kind of um, reality where someone um, in a fixation with understanding patterns in the world, which is actually interesting because our whole conversation is couched around conspiracies and making patterns in the world. You know, sometimes that is in a very leads to extremely brilliant outcomes, right? Mathematical insights um, in someone who is otherwise incapable of functioning except being utterly withdrawn from the world. Um, so it's a it's a really fascinating terrain of the human brain, you know. And we have uh, here I go into being an evolutionary neurobiologist, but we evolved these utterly miraculous cognating brains, you know, which were clearly evolved in, in humans because it made us successful. We are able to figure things out. That is a recipe for planning and success and reproduction, and it led to agriculture and architecture and culture and uh, so many aspects of what it means to be human, but it kind of has these traces of what makes us sometimes neurotic about not only being able to figure things out, but being driven to have to figure out connections. Um, and, and one way this manifests in both subtle and sometimes really neurotic ways is seeing patterns that aren't necessarily there and getting convinced by them, whether it's a theory of a cons global cabal controlling everything with flip of a switch or um, other things like you know my teenager wouldn't have happened like this if he hadn't experimented with that weed mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's really remarkable how uh, it's, it's pretty startling actually to listen to you describe the negative symptoms of schizophrenia and how similar they sound to clinical depression and, you know, you're describing this range from, you know, some amounts of schizophrenia and some slight expression of the symptoms all the way up to, you know, violent outbursts and people becoming, you know, unhinged with reality. Yeah. I, I've just got to think that there's a lot of people in the... Um, uh, you know, on the on the on the less obvious side, where it looks like depression, that are undiagnosed, for sure. And and, and of course, then you get in the world the world of comorbidities, which is you know when the diagnose you seem to have both diagnoses. Um, and there's lots of overlap in these in this world. Uh, you know, I, there's someone in in my sphere right now that is dealing with being diagnosed with schizophrenia, but he's like, no, I'm bipolar. Um, you know and. I certainly, over the years, sometimes, I, I mean, I, I try to be very deliberate in what I'm saying. I mean, the last thing I want to do is create stigma towards people who have struggles with their mental health, whether it's depression or schizophrenia. And, um, and you know, at, at risk of going down a tangent, which we won't, I mean, I, I go so far as to, you know, really follow people's thinking about cognitive liberty. I mean, just because someone is a... I mean, people can be functional schizophrenics if 
their surroundings and community, uh, you know, and, and vocation allows them to function. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, that that could go down a little wormhole. Um, yeah, it, it there's similarities for sure. And again, I've never been a medical doctor, and I have empathy for um, for psychiatrists when they have a balancing act like this and in figuring out you know and, and putting a name to things <laughs> there there again our underlying human neuroses we've got to put names to things um and and molecular psychiatry meaning you know since the advent of pharmaceutical drugs that you know have useful roles in in psychiatry um well it's changed everything i mean on the one side it's made things kind of um a medicine bowl approach like here try this pill and if it has an effect, well, that'll influence my diagnosis yeah. <laughs> as of what we've learned. Um, and and then we can go, you can go back to the very first antipsychotics like Thorazine that came out in the 50s and 60s that um, that that had huge social impact. I mean, there, there was a mindset, hey, we don't have to have homes for the mentally insane anymore. Um, and, and so those sort of sanitariums and inpatient mental health facilities are now sort of historical vestiges um and of course there were horrific things that happened you know lobotomies and other things like that but on the other hand it wasn't really a golden ticket you know the many many homeless people are schizophrenic many of them end up on the street um so it's it's a very complex issue how about that yeah Um, yeah schizophrenia is complicated and there are many ways to simplify it, including the idea that, you know, there's some simple trigger. Schizophrenia, typically, when it gets more serious, happens in the late teens to mid to late 20s. Um, and there is very often a precipitating kind of event. And it has been observed, that, you know, without being cued to go further into our conversation, I mean associations have been observed scientifically that sometimes people who are precipitated into having a psychotic event that turns into more manifest schizophrenia have experimented with cannabis. Um, Smoking tobacco is statistically associated with a greater likelihood of of, of developing schizophrenia. Going to college is more statistically likely to lead to a psychotic event that turns into schizophrenia you know but but nobody talks about you know banning kids from college it's a matter of uh someone and we'll get into much of this you know as we go on through the hour but someone who may already you know be be disposed to schizophrenia experiencing that stress and and you know environment so those other causalities are uh, really interesting, and you're right; they're never mentioned. And we will go we will go into that more um, in the second set. But before we before we go into that, um, now that we've established what schizophrenia is, this kind of this basket of attributes, both positive and negative attributes, things that we see that don't exist, and then ways that we should express ourselves that we're not, they're all in this big basket. 
um, let's let's look at a different basket, and and that basket is, you know, um, what people experience when they they over medicate. You know, n- most people who have used cannabis at some point or another have had that experience of taking too high of a dose of THC mm-hmm. and feeling like they're coming unhinged. Right? I'm, right. I'm familiar with it myself. Paranoia, situational hallucinations about what is and is not happening. Sometimes freestanding hallucinations if you get a really big dose and you yeah. know it eventually goes away as the body processes the cannabinoids so what i'd love for you to clarify gregor you know what are these over medicated experiences in medical terms and are these moments of psychosis well you know i mean thc is a a, a profoundly powerful um substance isn't it um, yeah and uh you know i flash back some to being a college professor and um you know the secret was pretty well known that i was the a pot guy you know scientist and uh it, and so a lot of kids at the a lot of students in the college would feel like therefore i was a safe person to open up to on their experience of you know the, the classic experience right i went to amsterdam i tried a cookie and it wasn't hitting me an hour later so i ate two more and those those edible experiences are, you know, the the classic ways to get into that place. And, you know, uh, frankly, uh, I learned this from our mutual friend Ethan Russo. Uh, you know that clinicians w- will refer to that state of having way too much and being in that place as a toxic psychosis, mm-hmm. meaning that a psychosis being completely, like I mentioned, you know, separated. You're you're kind of out of it, not kinda, sometimes you know you're way out of it, um, uh, in your own mental state, in your own mental bubble, and by saying toxic psychosis, meaning it's brought on by a toxin. In this case, and I know that cannabis people, sometimes myself included, can be averse to calling THC a toxin, but it takes you to a place you don't want to be. I mean, hey, it always stands to to mention that the reason why we're all so uh, enamored with cannabis is because of all the good things it can do and the fact that even in these worst case scenarios, you're going to wake up in the morning and be over it. Um, But yeah, it it can be called a toxic psychosis. Now, this happens with other substances, right? I mean, um, amphetamine and cocaine uh, likewise can create a very different kind of psychosis, which in the case of amphetamines um, is, I've been, I learned this when I was taking med school classes as part of my graduate training, that an amphetamine-induced psychosis from taking way too much, um, you know, speed, I used to call it, uh, or Adderall, what, uh, other kinds of amphetamines, in an emergency room setting, that's indistinguishable from someone having an, a paranoid schizophrenic psychosis. Um, and and indeed, there's a whole dopamine hypothesis of of why uh, you know amphetamines stimulate dopamine. Um, and there's in the drugs many of the drugs that are therapeutic for schizophrenic patients for uh, that illness are blockers of those drugs. So. I don't want to confound them too much. I mean, they're very different experiences going way too far on THC than going, you know, overdosing on an amphetamine. But they both can be called psychosis that are triggered by 
uh, by a, a, another substance. Um, it is interesting how if we go back to the the positive and negative schizophrenic um, symptom definitions, you know, take, let's take a a a, a, a minor negative, which would be, for example, like the lack of expression on your face, right? Um, there, you know, there are, it is not uncommon for somebody to have so much THC that their, that their facial expression is, is checked out. They're just so stoned, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and at that point, you know, um, you know, they would, they would be showing, evidence of of schizophrenia and and certainly if we go on the positive attributes like seeing things that aren't there or uh in my experience um imagining situations that are happening that are not right which Mm -hmm. which from your definition i think would would fit as a positive symptom um you know i think we've all been in a situation where like wait is this is this thing happening the way i think it is Mm -hmm. and you know more Mm -hmm. often than not you know you totally are misinterpreting the situation but it's it's a type of hallucination i would suggest so um well and it's important you know clinically and again i you know okay i've said the disclaimer enough i'm not a medical doctor but you know the to before someone could be diagnosed with schizophrenia there's there needs to be you know it's recognized that many of these things are are real or or phenomena that we all experience at different places in time you know imagination creativity is involves imagining things that aren't there um and being you know distracted in your thoughts is not in itself a disorder um but you know and so that there's just a disclaimer there but you you bring up an interesting point i hope i didn't interrupt you but i keep going i liked the way you were saying how getting stoned can lead to a, a blunting of affect and i do tend to think in many of those cases it's because you're in your head um, or in the ways that cannabis sort of can take you out of the temporal moment you know you've lost track of time and you're just sort of there and and being and I sometimes and this goes into my own conjecture but I, I think people who are um, experiencing it as part of a mental condition that may be something more um, like a, a, a schizophrenic or, or someone who's prodromal going to be schizophrenic, um, the the blunt affect can it it may be that there's an inability to sort of want to feel where you're at or plan the future or maybe it's a rumination going in your head. There's something similar to cannabis. Um, and in particular THC, you know, also sort of taking you out of your head and, and being blunt like that. And maybe, maybe that's, um, part of why schizophrenics can find cannabis therapeutic. It gives them a sort of a ease and a comfort in that space. And there, there again is a subject I know we're going to talk about a little bit later, but there's overlap and there's sort of this, there's, I think it's important. I go into this in this, you know, um, essay I wrote for Project CBD, that the the link, the accusation of reefer madness, that, that cannabis leads to madness, to schizophrenia, that it is a trigger, you know, a little time bomb. You know, there's all kinds of metaphors that are used to 
drive this association home. Um, part of the reason it's why it's successful is there is a sort of face value validity that you have to realize that that cannabis is a is a, a powerful psychoactive substance, and there are aspects of it that will look to the non-user as being as as sharing traits with symptoms of disordered thought. I mean, smoking cannabis does take your thought out of the normal order that it's in. Um, but that doesn't mean it's the same kind of situation of schizophrenia. And again, you've brought up the to- what I've called the toxic psychosis of a going way too far on THC, it, you know, a THC overdose, as it were. Um, and that even, you know, someone who experiments with with cannabis and goes too far may come away from it saying, yeah, it made me crazy. I mean, look at the article that uh, journalist Maureen Dowd wrote a few years ago that famously, you know, she decided to just way overindulge in edibles and wrote about it as a horror story. And going back to the Marijuana Tax Act, that really was the major piece in this age of cannabis prohibition we hopefully are we that we are coming out of um you know one of the powerful testimonies that supported criminalizing marijuana aside from the fact that they threw the name marijuana on it um was was a um a psychologist from temple university who who testified that he uh used I forget if he smoked it or ate it or he used cannabis and that he turned into a bat and flew around the room he didn't say I imagine it he said like on the congressional record that he flew, turned into a bat um, here's someone who clearly if he didn't have some ulterior motive I mean if you take him as believable he nonetheless had a really disturbing experience and again we you know we as humans tend to look for simple explanations and science is really not different from that and certainly politics and and rulership isn't you you come up with a simple uh, an explanation like hey i experienced this really out of my mind phenomenon i believe it that somebody could go crazy i felt like i wasn't going to come out of it what if that's true what if sometimes you never come out of it and you stay there forever um there's a certain level where you gotta sympathize with where people could come to that conclusion. And even when we look at ancient history, you know, those of us who are really cannabis buffs have enjoyed learning from some of our some research into ancient history and and we I mean it's it's really informative that humans have used cannabis therapeutically and as a sacrament since before human written history. But also, some of those early texts that refer to cannabis as medicine and what have you make reference to them as to cannabis as being like a substance that takes you out of your mind. Um, it, this isn't new, you know, that that we have a, a recognition that cannabis can cause um, serious impact to your mental state, but you come out of it and in many cases it's what we're going there for in the first place right yeah yeah i think that um one of the challenging aspects with this particular topic greg and why i so appreciate 
both the tone you took in your article for Project CBD and, and just, you know, how you are as a scientist overall is that so much of the cannabis media and, 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 you know, and stoner family and everything, you know, me included, we, we want, we're so used to being on the defensive from the taboo reefer madness people saying that cannabis is so terrible and will just destroy your life that it puts us in a position to kind of be reactive to, to that, to, to react to it, their, their gross, hyperbole of how bad it is by by kind of taking our own hyperbole and saying there is you know cannabis is flawless right there's right. there's nothing that's that could possibly wrong with, wrong with it and and you know what i don't even feel comfortable using the word wrong right um but mm-hmm. the there there are certainly parts uh, there are certainly experiences that I and others have with cannabis, which was not necessarily the intention and are dysphoric. Right. And and generally, as humans, we, we want to avoid dysphoria. And and it feels like so much so many of us in cannabis we feel constrained from talking about some of those less attractive aspects of cannabis because we're really afraid that that the the prohibition folks will like grab on that little thing that we say and say aha see here is the evidence that it is the absolute worst and we're like no all we're saying is that if you get too high it really sucks you know (laughs) which is which is not hyperbolic and 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 so it pushes us to not say anything and that's one of the reasons why i appreciate the shaping fire audience because the Shaping Fire audience can make that delineation. You know, the folks that listen to this show are, you know, pretty reliable thinkers, right? And they'll be like, oh, I get get this, right? I get that there can be some parts of cannabis which are less attractive to me without the opposite being true and that it's a demonic drug. And and so so, um, we're going to go to commercial break right now, but when we come back, that is where we're going to start with this idea of reverse causality, that that just because there are some of these attributes that... um, uh, cannabis that we don't like does not mean that uh, the inverse is true. And then, and then we're going to take a look at um, how the the nature of our country is set up that that reinforces this reefer madness. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and my guest today is neuroscientist Greg Gerdman. As cannabis regulations become more demanding and consumers become more educated, it is increasingly important to avoid the use of chemical pesticides when cultivating cannabis. Beneficial insects have been used for decades by the greenhouse vegetable and ornamental plant industry, and today many cannabis cultivators are moving from sprays and chemicals to beneficial insects. Copert Biological Systems has the beneficial insects, mites, and nematodes, microbials, sticky cards, and air distribution units you need to partner with nature to defend your garden. Whether you manage acres of canopy or have a simple grow tent in your home, Copert is ready to help answer your questions and help you transition away from chemical sprays towards clean and natural solutions. Since 1967, Copert has assisted growers in identifying pests and devising reliable solutions while providing healthy insects and mites that will protect your yield. Since the 1990s, Copert has been a leader in cannabis pest and disease control worldwide and have highly trained consultants to assist you in Canada and the U.S. from coast to coast. 
No matter where you live, Copert Biological Systems can help. Visit copert.com, choose your country, and get detailed information. That's copert, K-O-P-P-E-R-T.com. For the most up-to-date cannabis-related biological control information, you can also check out their Instagram, at Copert Canada. You know getting away from pesticides is good for health and good for business, and Copert is ready to help. Visit copert.com today. If you listen to Shaping Fire and you grow your own cannabis, chances are high that you are very particular about the inputs you use for growing. People like us painstakingly self-educate on cannabis nutrients and techniques so we can cultivate the best tasting and cleanest flowers possible. And when we go to purchase those nutrients, we want to be sure that our supplier shares our values and is providing exceptional quality. This is why I recommend buildasoil.com to my friends who care about quality. Build a Soil empowers organic growers to do their best work by sourcing and shipping only the finest cannabis growing supplies. From organic inputs, soils, soil testing and pots, to lights, growing tents, sprayers, and cover crops, Build a Soil founder Jeremy Silva doesn't just stock his store with what's available. He goes deep to personally vet each product for quality and determine that there isn't a better version of the product that he could be selling. Because of this arduous process, you know that your options on buildasoil.com have been carefully curated to create the results you are looking for. Not only that, but the Build a Soil way is a philosophy that will permeate your interaction with the company. From website design to pricing and shipping to after-purchase support, Jeremy and his team always strive to do their best and give you the best customer service in the business. Check out buildasoil.com today for top-tier quality cultivation supplies and a friends and family buying experience. And check out their educational videos and extraordinary social media while you're there too. Quality organic growing supplies at buildasoil.com. Oxygen is an essential plant nutrient, and keeping sufficient dissolved oxygen in the root zone is a challenge. Gaia's brand of ultra-fine nanobubble systems will help your garden thrive in ways you may not have considered. No matter if you grow in soil, hydroponics, or aquaponics, Gaia's ultra-fine nanobubble systems will increase your dissolved oxygen and increase your yield. Often, the first sign of inadequate oxygen supply to the roots is wilting of the plant under warm conditions and high light levels. Insufficient oxygen results in an accumulation of toxins and an insufficient amount of water and mineral absorption. If oxygen starvation continues, mineral deficiencies will begin to show, roots die back, and plants will become stunted. Healthy roots supplied with sufficient oxygen are able to absorb nutrient ions selectively from the surrounding solution as required. In studies, this has shown a 30% increase in plant growth. Not only do ultra-fine oxygen bubbles allow your plants to thrive, but they will keep your drip lines and irrigation pipes and plumbing clean too, because algae, pythium, and other invasive species only survive in low oxygen environments. And the Gaia system only costs about $2 per day to run. 
Gaia ultra-fine oxygen nanobubblers are also great for making compost teas and wild-crafted nutrient teas. The smaller bubbles of truly dissolved oxygen allow more microbes to reproduce faster. Go to Gaia's website at h205.com to learn more about using dissolved oxygen and how to purchase this simple yet amazing technology. That's h205.com. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and I'm your host, Shango Lose. And our guest this week is neuroscientist Greg Gerdeman. So, Greg, during the first set, we set up what schizophrenia and psychosis are, the, the baskets of attributes that they tend to have. And then we talked a lot about um, what it's like to um, over-medicate on THC and what's that like. And we definitely found some similarities between the two, but it doesn't mean that one necessarily causes the other or, or is even the same thing. We've seen this happen historically in the press and, and how, um, you know, the general population looks like cannabis never so obviously as when there is some sort of you know psychotic crime or murder or something and they find out that the individual who committed the crime you know was a cannabis user or used cannabis earlier in their life and then and then they they suddenly tie these psychotic breaks to the actual crime which of course was very useful during the the height of the prohibition and, and reefer madness days. Um, I know that you have studied this in depth, so would you kind of uh, summarize how that has happened and, and that, that, um, that phenomenon in the media of, of, of taking these, these folks who commit these crimes and, and dumping all of that at the feet of cannabis? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll try to do that. I mean, it's, it goes in line with this, you know, thinking of it as a conspiracy theory in that um, evident when something seems to a story has been told that you know the reefer causes madness, and when that story is out there and there's a believability to it and a desire to believe it for ulterior motives and and what have you, um, it snowballs every time you get you know something that can be seen as a piece of evidence. And and you mentioned that it was instrumental in prohibition. It certainly was. And there's a a very um, specific case that I came to find out about because I was living down in St. Pete, Florida. And this case happened in Ybor City in Tampa um, in the uh, 1930s, the early 1930s. This fellow named um, Victor Licata um, was a terribly troubled young man and it's a horrible story this guy became an axe murderer he he killed his entire family his parents his siblings um and it became a um cause celeb sort of you know a publicized face because he was um it was said that he was a marijuana addict the um police found in some way, I mean, I don't remember all the details, but um, the the police had like a marijuana cigarette and said he had been addicted to smoking marijuana cigarettes for you know like six months. Um, well, it, this was as these things happened um, picked up by powerful figures like Harry Anslinger, who is probably the most well was the most important driving force in in that you know prohibition. Um, and 
they he became the face of the drug crazed murderous uh madman uh the 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 marijuana dope fiend uh, all of these pejorative terms got created justified by an individual case of shocking horror value you know an absolute tragedy but um as historians have looked back at that case and i think it happened you know it didn't take too long for it to to happen that it was recognized that this person had um a a history a pre-existing history of disturbing mental illness in fact he never did time for that crime he was institutionalized for his um psychosis because he was considered unfit to stand trial he was diagnosed at the time what was called dementia precox with homicidal tendencies um, but it was it called that some kind of a, a powerful psychotic schizophrenia um, it also it's worth noting so he was committed to the hospital of the insane um, he his he had a family history of uh of severe mental illness like an uncle his parents had some uh insanity in their family his parents were actually first cousins of one another and uh during his time at um uh the mental institution uh his the records never really focused on saying that his you know that marijuana use had any cause in uh in his condition but that creates such a graphic story um, and became very powerfully associated with a drug that was not well known, certainly not as marijuana in the United States. And it, it helped to propel cannabis into the prohibited status um, when it was effectively banned by the Marijuana Tax Act. And these kinds of things do go on. You know, I don't at the top of my ha- head have a more graphic uh, you know example is that there may not be another example as important but there's been you know it, there are elements of that that still continue i mean i remember when i was in florida a few years ago there was a case of remember that case of uh the the guy who like was caught by police like trying to eat the face of another man he yeah, was like completely psychotically deranged and the media um, had a field day with that without uh, any da- details a field day and and it it was at least for a brief period of time blamed on marijuana because of uh, a drug tox that this guy had THC in his system it was actually it was something that was uh, he had also been ingesting like some of these powerful bath salts that are um, just um, intensely psychoactive and certainly can lead to psychotic um, severe psychotic behaviors I mean and the notion that it was linked to cannabis at all was ridiculous but it serves what is you know been a, a political will to support the theory i mean the the mindset the 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 fallacy that cannabis creates schizophrenia you know there there are lots of ways that i think these theories get supported you know one i've said you got to have some face value believable to believability to it right okay check secondly for something like the conspiracy of reef for menace um it i think 
you know, there tends to be certain ulterior motives. Certainly, Anslinger had interior ulterior motives. He was a prohibitionist. He was on a crusade against Satanism, which he associated with jazz music and their reefers. He was racist, and um, there's another insidious ulterior motive, right? When the bulk of the country doesn't know anything about marijuana, and it gets colored as something that is associated with the ethnic minorities that you you might want to blame for something, there are ulterior motives that get these things set up. And when a story gets so heavily institutionalized um, that marijuana is a slippery slope to to madness, it's one of the ways that cannabis hijacks your brain, um, there are vested interests in just not being wrong. You know, certainly prison industry and incarcerate you know law enforcement doesn't want to be wrong with that clinicians that you know have come to think that that's how it works they don't want to believe that they've uh been wrong about it um and and you know flash forward to you know the last 20 30 years the funding structure for research into cannabis has all been biased it's not anymore but for many years, it was very perniciously biased towards you. You're not really going to study marijuana unless you're proposing to understand how it's bad for you. There's a presupposition. And in the world of brain sciences, that was, I'm going to d- conduct university-based research to show how cannabis leads to the use of other drugs or how you get addicted to it like you do other drugs or how it leads to um, insanity which was never really based on a scientific argument or scientific evidence. But nonetheless, it gets kind of institutionalized and, and sheltered by a scientific paradigm. It's, it's like it's become this cultural prejudice. Like, like, like it was posited at this at one point, and people jumped on it and started repeating it. And so that be, suddenly became the status quo. And then everybody kind of fell in behind that status quo because either A, it was convenient and useful to them, or B, um, there was not um, good reason for somebody to stand against this this wave of belief in this cultural prejudice. Yeah. You know, I mean, the history is just fascinating. There's so many fascinating things about cannabis, whether it's scientifically, social, cultural, right? I mean, when I've mentioned how this, you know, this reefer madness mythology and this axe murderer and the testimony from the from the professor Munch who said he turned into a bat, all these things drove prohibition. The one voice that was standing out against the Marijuana Tax Act in 1937 was the American Medical Association saying, wait, that's are characterizing this <laughs> reefer in ways that, we, you know, we, cannabis is a medicine. It's been in apothecaries. You know, we understand this. It's got great potential. Um, but, man, there was, I guess, the convergence of World War II and everything else going on and how successful Anslinger was with literally going to these apothecaries and smashing it up, destroying all of the bottles of cannabis were they, it was removed from the pharmacopoeia. Um, it changed our cultural memory, and yeah, then you get into the situation where there's a story that's been repeated. It has a certain face value to it. There are horror stories that you just don't want to be true. Um, 
it's associated with a counterculture or with racial minorities. Um, and but but for me coming into this, you know, I came to cannabis as a brain scientist, and it wasn't because I wanted to study cannabis. It was more because I wanted to study these intersections of the mind and the brain and when they go wrong. Um, but a lot has been said, rightly so. A lot will be said for many years to come about how the research bias has existed that's made it so hard to study cannabis as a medicine. You know, and there's many ways we can go into that, but one of them is this, you know, the fact that cannabis research has been so monopolized, so to speak, by the drug abuse arm of the National Institute of Health, um, the National Institute on Drug Abuse, um, and the whole paradigm that you're studying it as a problem and trying to understand how it can damage the brain. One of the beautiful, fun ironies is that research led to show that <laughs> it protects the brain. I mean, the cannabis acts on an endocannabinoid system that is fundamentally part of our brain's neuroprotective system. Um, and so the fallacy in that level that cannabis damages the brain has just been completely be de debunked and, and, um, and reversed. But the fallacy that it leads to insanity still kind of lingers and uh, big grant dollars are still reserved and or go to applying new tools to ask the same questions like really sophisticated brain imaging methods to say what's different in the fine granular you know tracts of the brain if someone's experienced it you know uh, experimenting with cannabis and there have been papers that have been splashes. I've had a whole talk on this um, over the years that there have been papers that really hit the media like, whoa, the verdict is out. You smoke cannabis, it changes your brain. We know it because we can see it in these super powerful magnet scanners. But most of those studies find these very small changes uh, in structures of the brain without correlating it to any functional deficit. So, because of this institutionalized story, the deficit can be inferred. And even in a scientific paper, you're writing an article in a way that will most, you know, be accepted by the funding structures and tell the story that you've been trying to tell. And you are, I mean, uh, and I don't like to discredit or, or uh, be harsh on scientists, but I, I see these places where some difference in the brain structure, a very small difference, not something that a neurologist could point out on a, on a looking at the brain scan. You have to have computer algorithms say, hey, there's a slight difference in the volume of the left amygdala in someone who's been using cannabis. And that difference is interpreted as damage or compensation for damage, which gets really pretty ludicrous. So, Greg, I would like to change the... I don't know, maybe the vocabulary of where we go next for a moment, because um, one of the things that I so enjoy is that, you know, I, you can teach things very, very effectively in uh, common folk language because, you know, you've been a, a professor and you've been teaching students and people for, for a long time. But then I also know you as a research scientist and have heard you get like super nerdy and you do both in this recent article for Project CBD. And so 
what I'd like to ask you to describe is this idea of reverse causality, capital R, capital C, um, in its uh, scientific terms. Because up till now in this set, we have um, hit the nail pretty hard that that uh, this idea of having too much THC giving this this dysphoric experience has similarities with with schizophrenia and how historical criminals um, who had some connection to marijuana were then used as kind of like scapegoats or patsies for this um, political uh, racial position that people wanted to take. But at the same time, um, there is a very specific logical premise that fails that that these these the studies that try to support these taboos of reefer madness they fail they the the the, the science itself fails to prove the point that cannabis will cause um, schizophrenia and psychotic breaks in cannabis users. And, and, and you don't have to go down this path too far, but I, for, for those folks who are really into the forensic nature of the science, if you would describe reverse causality and why um, the, mad, the, the reefer madness fails on this very important um, uh, standard of evidence, um, I, think that, I think that that would be tasty. Okay. Uh, well, you know, it's not just that there are associations made in you know the popular press and the shock stories there have been correlations observed in scientific studies between cohorts of people who are schizophrenic and cohorts of people who are not and finding that those who develop schizophrenia were slightly more likely to have used cannabis prior to that, earlier in their life. You know, almost all of these are sort of these retrospective studies that are set up like that. Basically, you find a clinical population. The first one that had impact was a group of army soldiers in Sweden. Now, they found, they, they took a group of them that had been diagnosed with schizophrenia, and then the you set up, you try to find an equally sized group that's similar um, and, and that don't have schizophrenia and you ask the question well was cannabis use different and these kind of situations have looked back and said well there is a correlation science is always a looking for correlation and it's often said that correlation does not prove causation and it gets a lot harder to to do that and yet we want to ask the question of does it cause it so there have been multiple studies, and of course, this gets very politicized, and it's why it's important for the cannabis culture and industry to not just dismiss this, um, because there is a considerable body of science that says the use of, or the, the uh, diagnosis of schizophrenia is correlated with a greater likelihood of having experimented or being a cannabis user. Uh, it's more often I'm a heavy cannabis user. So there's a correlation. And there and that gets flipped around into saying that heavy cannabis use is therefore a risk factor for um, contracting schizophrenia. 
This starts to imply causation. The cannabis use is a risk factor when really rigorously the statistics of it just mean that they are associated. And several, you know, studies have have in more recent years, you know, when I think that that the bias and and even the scientific, you know, uh, bravery to challenge assumptions uh, has arisen. People have taken very close looks at this and tried to tease out where there could be family history involved or other confounds, as we call it. If you make a correlation, but you know what? It could be due to other factors, like the weed smokers came from a, a different background, a different socioeconomic background than the others, and that maybe was leading to the problem. Um, in some studies, socioeconomic background is a confound that's not well controlled. Um, family genetics is certainly one that has been hard to track down, but just you know, in the last 10 years or so, it's become much more, the abilities to sequence DNA have led to so much insight into the human genome, and you get these powerful like genome-wide association studies that are able to let's keep it a little simple and say, you know, just categorize people's genetic history more carefully and and qualify it. And it, at least two, there are two particular studies um, that really looked well at this. I mean, many studies have said, well, there may be a confound, you know, and, I, and there are studies that show like identical twins, um, you know, the cannabis use, if there's identical twins that are discordant for cannabis use, one uses and one doesn't, um, it doesn't really pan out that the cannabis user is more likely to get schizophrenia. Um, but there have been a couple of studies that have indicated that, you know, there's a, that, yeah, we too see a correlation and that there is a risk associating heavy cannabis use with schizophrenia, but that it seems to be connected to genetic markers, meaning that there's a genetic similarity to people who, or that is a, a more strong driver in these studies that wasn't necessarily obvious, but that if you look at the genetic markers, there's a stronger drive to the schizophrenic associate cannabis schizophrenia. So again, this does get delicate, difficult to talk about, but it's scientifically very um, accepted and rigorous. And what it points to is the idea that cannabis users, I mean, that is this, there are people with latent sort of predisposition to schizophrenia um, that may be more inclined to use cannabis heavily prior to being diagnosed. I mean, this isn't a new idea, but it's fairly new research has been able to test it well using modern genomic methods. And so I'm, we've talked about negative and positive symptoms to begin the first set. Cannabis, I mean, uh, not can, schizophrenia very often is associated with a, what's called a prodrome or prodromal patient, or prodromal schizophrenia, meaning it's been long recognized that um, individuals can suffer from those negative symptoms of blunt affect and anhedonia. It gets identified in them prior to actually having a psychotic, 
you know, break from reality and becoming diagnosed with more manifest schizophrenia. So we know that there are latent individuals that are latently predisposed to schizophrenia. They start to experience the prodrome early. And studies have shown that, that, um, well, I get a little confused about what I'm saying with what studies have and haven't shown. Those prodromal patients tend to have negative symptoms first. A study that I cite out of Australia in the in my article found, and it was not the only one, that it found that schizophrenic patients do self-medicate with cannabis, and it's primarily to alleviate negative symptoms by self-report, you know, and I could give some of my conjecture about why that might be, but the users themselves say, yeah, I'm smoking to medicate, um, and it helps to alleviate these aspects of not feeling, you know, connected to my feelings. Um, so the question of reverse causality is an important one and helps to explain the confounds between environment and genetics and this association. The reason that triggered my article in my little essay in Project CBD, I've thought about these things for many years, but I actually, you know, the other night when we were all anxiously thinking about counting ballots and the election returns and you can't get your mind off anything else. And in my inbox dropped this new table of contents from um, JAMA Psychiatry, the Journal of the American Medical Association Psychiatry um, publication. And it had this brand new study that is a breakdown by these authors, Gillespie and Kendler, two different, I have no affiliation or don't know them, but they wrote what I consider a really elegant review and, and statistical reanalysis of studies looking at the question of causality. And they, you know, they reviewed the literature. They looked at these, including studies that, you know, concluded there was reverse causality. But their paper, again, that's brand new, asked the question, they said, let's consider that there are three hypotheses. Hypothesis one which is the one that's been kind of traditionally ingrained, is that schizophrenia, ca- cannabis is causal for schizophrenia. It's like putting a match where there would not otherwise be a fire. Oh, those are my words, not theirs. But that you know, cannabis is a risk that will make someone turn schizophrenic who otherwise would not. Hypothesis two is that the, it's complicated by confounding factors and that someone's genetics may be predisposing them and cannabis use could kind of tip the scale. And uh, hypothesis three was that it's a completely reverse sort of thing. That there's, I mean, that cannabis that that only if you're schizophrenic do you use cannabis, and there's you know it's there's no real connection. Um, and and what they found in a nutshell, I mean, I direct people to the article in in my Project CBD essay, um, is that it, the hypothesis one is completely out the window. The studies that have shown reverse have found evidence for reverse causality, which were published in very good journals, very good science, were are are compelling. And they did a fresh statistical breakdown that I won't try to explain about how the data point to the fact that the that studies showing increased use of schizo- of cannabis leads to a greater risk of psychosis are greatly overstating the 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 relationship that the reverse causality may actually 
be the case for and for the kind of reasons that I've embellished here that someone who is already likely to become schizophrenic or at greater risk because of their genes because of how their brain is getting wired up throughout your teenage and 20s years um, schizophrenia is a risk for that person say with a family history and that person may be more likely to enjoy cannabis and getting into a habitual pattern with cannabis so there's a statistical association that is actually in the reverse being someone that is because of your the nature of your genetics and environment are going down a path towards a schizophrenia that that more likely pushes them or influences them to be ever so slightly more likely to be a cannabis user That would be so interesting. I mean, it is so interesting that simply because people who may be experiencing early life mental challenges turn to cannabis for comfort could actually be misread as being the cause. And then all of this hyperbole and reefer madness culture has come from that um before we go into that let's go ahead and take our last break you'll be right back we'll we'll all be right back you are listening to shaping fire and our guest this week is neuroscientist greg erdeman Sometimes the topics I want to share with you are far too brief for an entire Shaping Fire episode. In those instances, I post them to Instagram. I invite you to follow my two Instagram profiles and participate online. The Shaping Fire Instagram has follow-up posts to Shaping Fire episodes, growing and processing best practices, product trials, and, of course, gorgeous flower photos. The Shango Los Instagram follows my travels on cannabis garden tours, my successes and failures in my own garden, insights and best practices from personal grows everywhere, and always gorgeous flower photos. On both profiles, the emphasis is on sharing what I've learned in a way that you can replicate it in your own garden, your own hash lab, or for your own cannabinopathic health. So I encourage you to follow at Shaping Fire and at Shango Los and join our online community on Instagram. After you've caught up on the latest Shaping Fire episodes, do you sometimes wish there was more cannabis education available to learn? Well, we got you. Shaping Fire has a fabulous YouTube channel with content not found on the podcast. When I attend conventions to speak or moderate panels, I always record them and bring the content home for you to watch. The Shango Los YouTube channel has world-class speakers, including Zoe Sigmund's lecture, Understanding Your Endocannabinoid System, Kevin Jodry of Wonderland Nursery talking about breeding cannabis for the best terpene profile, Frenchie Cannoli's Lost art of the hashishan presentation nicholas mahmoud on regenerative and polyculture cannabis growing dr sunil agarwal on the history of cannabis medicine around the world eric vlosky and josh rutherford on solventless extraction and jeff lowenfels on the soil food web there are several presentations from dr ethan russo on terpenes and the endocannabinoid system too while there, be sure to check out the three 10-part Shaping Fire Sessions series, one with Kevin Jodry, one with Dr. Ethan Russo, and one with Jeff Lowenfels. And even my own presentations on how to approach finding your dream job in cannabis and why we choose cannabis business, even though the risks are so high. As of today, there's over 200 videos that you can check out for free. So go to youtube.com forward slash Shango or click on the link in the newsletter. 
As a business owner, you are incredibly busy. In reality, you are responsible for everything your company does. You've got so many responsibilities every single day that often you just don't have the time to really dig into your marketing as deeply as you'd like. You know there's more that you could do to reach out to new customers and encourage loyalty in the customers you already have, but you certainly don't have the time for it and you're not ready to hire somebody full-time for that role either. For you, I recommend Blunt Branding. At Blunt Branding, Kirsten Nelson and her team are focused on improving your bottom line. You know, most marketing firms are excited to make your logo, packaging, and website very pretty, but they leave responsibility for improving your bottom line up to you. They don't want that kind of responsibility, but that's pretty much the most important part of marketing, right? Kirsten and her team will help you engage new customers, funnel them to your point of sale, whether it be online or a storefront, and keep them coming back to you and telling their friends. Now, if you happen to be a new cannabis company or an established company moving from medical to adult use in your state, Kirsten especially can help you. Not only is she well-versed in marketing and finance, but she totally gets cannabis, whole plant medicine, terpenes, heritage farmers, and the particular needs of startups. Check out what she did recently for Moontime Medicinals and Humboldt at MoontimeMedicinals.com. Kirsten and her team put together a whole brand package for them, built their website, and wrote their sales materials. No doubt, this is a paid commercial spot, but that does not mean they bought my opinion. I've worked with Blunt Branding on five projects now for various of their clients, and every single time they have done more than they have promised and over-delivered on results. I love how they generate new revenue and focus on that as the goal instead of just making a pretty logo. Similarly, every single friend I have referred them to has come back to thank me, and that just does not happen every day. Grab a pen and paper because the website address is coming up. If you want someone to implement marketing programs that feed your bottom line, give Blunt Branding a call. They will share proven techniques to increase your audience and generate sales while using cutting-edge technology solutions in the background that make all of this easy, automatic, and trackable. Go to shapingfire.com forward slash Blunt Branding to find out more. You can also click the link in our newsletter, Blunt Branding, marketing that makes you money. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I'm your host, Shango Los, and our guest this week is neuroscientist Greg Gerdeman. So right before the break, Greg, you were telling us about the Gillespie and Kendler study and um, what it was showing the... um, the fact that folks who turned to cannabis for comfort because they were experiencing um, some mental challenges then got conflated and were seen as it being the cause. Um, you're also you bring up in the your your project CBD article. Um, how other data points kind of miraculously appear in the science that are not actually supported by science, but they become the default setting, like this belief um, that cannabis causes madness as well. And another one that you point out is the 10% THC threshold. And that, um, and so now we're starting to see suggestions like we, like we did, you know, two years ago, having a lot of states say, yes, we will have legal cannabis, but we'll be CBD only, which of course, that's just playing into fears and, and not at all based on science. This idea that cannabis that would be sold in recreational stores should not be more than 10%. It also has got a questionable um, genesis. Tell us more about that. Well, I'm not sure where it first appeared, but there has been 
a real thrust that I saw um, in the state of Florida to identify this 10% level as where THC becomes too high. And again, you know, the cannabis culture and the industry is very quick to dismiss this. Hey, it's just more prohibitionist talk. But people were pointing to a publication in a very prestigious journal, The Lancet, Lancet Psychiatry, um, that said this is all based in science. You know, the the you got to follow the science. That's a catchphrase, and that's why we have to we do have to look at the science and be able to address it on its real terms and not just turn that over to those who are making a counter argument. So the the notion is that you know there's been a long connection with with cannabis and schizophrenia, right? And we've all been hearing for years that today's cannabis isn't your daddy's weed, it's much stronger, but in order to make something actionable, there's a statement that 10% THC is too high. Where does that come from? The fuel that people were pointing to was this article in The Lancet um, that had a great deal of prestige to it. It was a multi-center study in numerous countries. It, it put itself as a study across Europe, but it also included Brazil um, and I think another Latin American country. Um, and it was primarily led by a group in London that is one of the most productive groups that have published over the years again and again this notion that that you know strong cannabis, the skunk um, leads to psychosis. There really are only a handful of labs that have put the most of that out there. Um, this study, um, what it did, I'll break down how it was designed, it basically recruited into the study um, clinics from various different countries. And this adds to the prestige of the article because there are lots of authors on it from different countries and they've got funding from their national institutes of of health or research, and so you get this byline that's enormous that looks very impressive. Um, and and in, I can tell you, you know, in legislature committees, a lot of times that's the most influential thing. Well, this was published by all these important people. Um, but what they did is they recruited clinics and, and clinicians within them so that when someone showed up with a first episode psychosis, um, that they would go follow this certain protocol to assess their cannabis use a in the past. And, you know, it, and, and that's not schizophrenia, right? We've described psychosis is a break from reality and it can be triggered by, uh, it, it can be triggered by taking a substance. Um, it can be triggered by having an enormous amount of stress or trauma. Um, but, in instances of, instances of first episode psychosis, there was an interview following where individuals were asked about their history with cannabis and they were allowed, it was the study was designed so that people would use whatever their local expressions were. Um, you know, there's no looking at labels, there's no describing, you know, quantitatively what they had taken, but they would say, you know, they smoked homegrown or they smoked hash or you know whatever you refer to these things in French or Portuguese or what have you, they would use their colloquial terms, and then that 
that would be correlated with what the like national record was on what those substances are in terms of THC. So now I this isn't even obvious in the main body of the paper. When you're reading it, they're just saying that individuals were and there's a lot of complicated statistics, but they were saying that people that had were were users of potent cannabis greater than 10% THC were uh, more I mean that psycho- people with psychosis were more likely to have used if, if they had used uh, potent THC it was a greater risk factor sorry I was garbling that a little bit um, whereas low potency THC under 10% the correlation wasn't there and you know when I'm reading it and it's being waved around I'm like well how did they get to this 10% so I'm you have to go to the supplemental materials online and then still you just see these tables where it's you know determined that like hashish in Spain is greater than 10% hashish in Brazil or or in England is less than 10% homegrown self-reported homegrown in England is higher than 10% but imported is less than 10% if they call it skunk it's above 10% and and all of these different things which that was buried in the references and where they got to that was buried in the references of the supplementary material and it were like the it was like these government white papers like reports on health in europe and you know that's how i i had to dig and realize that they're basically taking police records that say hey hash from spain was like this moroccan stuff that was 12 percent and those kinds that kind of chain of custody if you will was used to define an arbitrary border where where they said and you know it, scientifically you shouldn't you should make your hypothesis in advance but it certainly leads one to suspect that they chose a border of high low where the statistics might work out maybe 10% was just what they were looking for but i don't know at any rate it was arbitrary and it's just that gets claimed as being scientifically based when anybody who knows about the process of testing cannabis for potency in terms of THC percentage knows that it's tricky and how you prepare the sample and the kinds of machines you run it on and uh, there's lots of different variability in in substances and first of all the notion that a you know, uh, a sample of recorded, you know, the, of confiscated imported cannabis in England is necessarily representative of what somebody was smoking is, I think, quite a stretch. Um, but it was really heralded. Actually, there was an editorial that accompanied it in The Lancet um, that was saying, well, this is an innovative approach that's like combining like a material history to show that it's the strong stuff that really uh, reveals a, a, a time bomb for schizophrenia. And what kills me is that that strength or lack of strength and that correlation was used in this scientific article to justify all kinds of hand-waving. Um, I've never read an article before that in so many places says if this you know hypothesis of causality is true then 
they conducted a whole new set of thought experiments saying like, hey, if this relationship we've put out here is true, then like X percent of all of the psychosis in the Netherlands is due to high potency cannabis. 30, half of all the schizophrenia in the city of London is due to smoking high potency cannabis. What a I don't jump. know, what I don't a know jump. if they said half. Yeah. It was a tremendous jump. And over and over again, it ha- I'm sure a reviewer made them repeat over and over again if this causality is true. Because they had not established that causality. It was no better in that regard than any of these other papers that I've you know made you know, reference to in this course of our conversation. The causality could just be every bit a reverse causality. It could entirely be a reverse causality where, again, someone reporting with a first episode psychosis, and they did control, They at least they attempted to control that it wasn't that they were acutely, you know, stoned out of their mind, and that was the cause of the experience. Now, you know, you have to take on faith that that was true. Maybe it was or not. But at any rate, someone experienced a psychotic, you know, reaction could have been, that that propensity could have been driving them to be using cannabis. The 10% threshold at any rate is, is arbitrary. It's based on um, a, a flimsy record. I mean, sometimes years and years old, the, the measures that, of how potent, Brazilian hashish would be the way I was digging through the reference. It seemed to be from like 2004 to 2006. Um, but even if it's more recent, what if it's 2015? Who's to say how that cannabis was stored, how it was ground up? I mean, as we know, and I reference in the article, you know, it's been quite a issue in the U.S. Labs that are dedicated to the cannabinoid detection. You send the same sample to different labs, and they can get different methods if they're not following the same methods of calibrating it and validating their methods. And I'm sorry, but national law enforcement from a scattering of, you know, half a dozen or, I mean, more than that, 10 different countries, to think that they're using the same methods and that you're comparing apples to apples um, is is kind of ridiculous. Even like comparing flour to, a, you know, dense packed rosin, you know, the preparation methods are different. When you um, tell me that, that the, that the data sets that the studies were based on, were using, uh, product categories like skunk or yeah. homegrown. Um, there's so much very, I mean, first of all, skunk really isn't a category, right? No. And, and so it's a misunderstanding of the, of the, the community as a whole, but then even even if we just had do have a category of homegrown, well, you know, how it's grown indoor, outdoor, the the genetics, the talent of the grower, all of these things add so many variabilities to tell me that the underlying data is just garbage. And then the rest of the study is built on this garbage data and then made to look good for whatever motivation and and that is the part that really red flags for me like like how, how, why why is it worthwhile to even put out the rest of the study when it's based on on this sand yeah yeah it, but it has been sensationalized and it was right from the beginning even finding quotes in the media from the authors and even in the study itself saying you know that this was 
they went through this analysis of guesstimating how much, what proportion of, you know, psychosis in these different areas was due to cannabis. I mean, for the sake of influencing policy out of a fear that potent cannabis products shouldn't be there. And then that, that jumps to another, you know, important fallacy, which is this obsession over percent composition and THC. I mean, if you're so scared about the percent composition, I mean, dronabinol is a pill that's been a FDA-approved medicine since the, what, early 80s? And, I mean, if you're going to go down to percents, well, inside that capsule, it's better than, what, 98% THC. Um, and popping a bunch of those pills can lead to a pretty profound, you know, uh, reaction. To, to say that you put this arbitrary limit on flour, it's just, it's not, it's it's not, it's certainly not rooted in this claim that we got to follow the science and science has shown, you know, over 10% THC to be a ticking time bomb. That's, it's ridiculous. It hasn't shown the causality any better than the rest. And, you know, I would be remiss not to say that this whole body of research, you know, is still, it's still consistent with uh, the thinking that if someone does have a genetic or latent predisposition to schizophrenia, even if using cannabis is something that they feel improves their quality of life, it could be a risk factor for progressing their disease or the speeding the onset of frank schizophrenia that may be and this is my own you know thinking on it that may be simply because if you get into a habit of cannabis you're you're more likely to eventually have one of those moments of taking a a, a lot or it may be that using it regularly high thc cannabis desensitizes down regulates your endocannabinoid system your receptors and that that at a moment of developmental vulnerability sort of takes away the the buffering capacity that the endocannabinoid system is meant to serve um you know so the these are very I, i take these issues seriously that someone who has a family history of mental illness especially psychotic illness schizophrenia um should be very cautious around high THC cannabis. Um, and, and I think that there's really credible and interesting research out there that having balance of CBD, you know, whether it's a type 2 cannabis flower with balanced ratios or formulated products, um, it may be that that would be less of a risk factor um, in if there is truth that you know, uh, someone with a disposition to schizophrenia may hasten the onset uh, by by using cannabis. It may be less so with what are more modern, well-controlled medicinal preparations and, and trying to include CBD. Um, you know, this is a nuanced conversation, right? It's an important one, and we value uh, people's lives and don't want to steer them wrong. But the the blunt hatchet of uh, a law that says 
you know, haha, you've thought you've legalized this, but we're instead going to make it only legal to use less potent THC. I mean, um, the vast majority of the population is never going to experience psychosis or schizophrenia. And there are large swaths of people among the medical cannabis community, patients who benefit from higher doses of THC. And those who are using cannabis in a, you know, adult use responsible way, I mean, may enjoy, I mean, hell, it, an, an irony here is that, you know, sort of the, some of the legislation that's been proposed only focuses on flour at all and not, you know, a vape pen that can have 80% plus THC. Um, but that's sort of the next step. If they're going to, if somebody's going to ban flour on the base of 10% THC, why wouldn't they go to concentrates? Yeah, it feels um, like a setup for dabbing for sure. Yeah. At any rate, you know, if they're going to use the mantra, let's follow the science. Yeah, let's do. The tide has changed on our cannabis, our perceptions of cannabis. You know, the pendulum is sw- swinging back in a way that is exciting. I mean, cannabis has been discovered and celebrated and forgotten and demonized over and over again throughout cultures. But one thing we can say is that it has spread around the globe more than it ever has. Um, and our understanding of cannabis and how it works in our body is far more developed and sophisticated and scientific than it ever has, just by the evolution of science. Um, and, you know, we just, we know better than to r- rely on these fear-based, simplistic models. And I just celebrate studies by, you know, straight-laced white coat physicians who look incredibly at the, at the question and saying, you know what, this sort of direct cause and effect that smoking heavy cannabis is going to enhance the risk of schizophrenia is, is not well-founded. The reverse causality hypothesis is very well-grounded. The whole body of literature needs to be viewed through that lens, and it, and it changes the story to one that's more sober. You know, it's more, it's less, it's less demanding of cannabis being this boogeyman that is a slippery slope to, you know, wrecking our youth. Um, so that's kind of where all of that boils down to. And we can't just dismiss whether it's, you know, a new flash-in-the-pan brain imaging study that says, hey, you smoke weed, your brain looks a little different, um, or this kind of study that says, look, we've, we've studied large numbers of people in many countries, and we know that people smoking potent cannabis are at risk of, you know, a life of madness. Um, you have to look at it from the mindset of really critiquing the science to, to understand what's there and what's been oversold. Greg, that's great. And I really appreciate you, you know, taking this measured approach, this topic with me, because, you know, as we talked about before we recorded, um, you know, to, to s- gently detangle a topic that's this 
complex. Um, you know, this is not usual podcast fare for most shows, and we had to walk a lot of lines. But um, that's one of the reasons that I like you is that you're always willing to walk that line, and um, and you, and you give it to us straight. So. Um, well, I appreciate I'm, I'm, that. Uh, yeah. Well, and I and I hope you know my my motivation for this show was you know most of us you know you and I and the listeners of this show unless they're joining us for the first time probably believed all of this to be true and they believed this very easily because they knew the fix was in against cannabis to begin with and we've all been smoking it and it's been doing good things for our lives but. A show like this, um, I think, arms us better for conversations with our families and with our kids' school systems and yeah. and with other stoners, right, who who are are jumping on the bandwagon um, misguidedly or are, are themselves uh, repeating falsehoods about science in support yeah. of cannabis, just yeah. like people quote falsehoods against cannabis. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, man. I, uh, I appreciate you and uh, thank you for joining us and sharing your uh, experience. And, uh, and I, you know, I look forward to having you on the show again. It's my pleasure. Thanks a lot. I, um, I do a lot more educating now on more straightforward and bite-sized subjects, but these deep dives are sometimes, um, are, are sometimes really important and, and we can't just be reflexive and say, ah, Everything these guys say is garbage. Um, and and I, I love what you said about being able to speak with whomever, school boards or activists going to legislature committees. I mean, um, it's important to, to address science on its own merits. Fantastic, dude. So if you'd like to connect with Dr. Greg Gerdeman, you can follow him on Instagram at uh, Ganjanesh, and that's G A N J A. N-E-S-H, Ganja Nesh. Um, you can also just search for Greg Gerdeman if you want as well. Um, the article that was at the basis of our discussion today, um, I highly recommend that you check out there on projectcbd.org. It is entitled Cannabis and Schizophrenia, A Conspiracy of Causality. And um, the link to that, of course, is on the Shaping Fire website. And, you know, if you like uh, how Greg works through complex topics, I encourage you to check out the other two Shaping Fire episodes that Greg was kind enough to join me for. That is um, uh, Shaping Fire episode 46, um, focused on exercise, athleticism, and cannabis. And then all the way back to episode 14 on synthetic cannabinoids, in case you want to learn what all the hoo-ha is about making synthetic cannabinoids in the lab. You can find more episodes of the Shaping Fire podcast and subscribe to the show at shapingfire.com and wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed the show, we'd really appreciate it if you would leave a positive review of the podcast wherever you download. Your review will help others find the show so they can enjoy it too. On the Shaping Fire website, you can also subscribe to the newsletter for insights into the latest cannabis news, exclusive videos, and giveaways. On the Shaping Fire website, you also find transcripts of today's podcast as well. 
Be sure to follow on Instagram for all original content not found on the podcast. That's at Shaping Fire and at Shango Los on Instagram. Be sure to check out the Shaping Fire YouTube channel for exclusive interviews, farm tours, and cannabis lectures. Does your company want to reach our national audience of cannabis enthusiasts? Email hotspot at shapingfire.com to find out how. Thanks for listening to Shaping Fire. I've been your host, Shango Lose.